0: Hey there, and welcome back to Tax Sale Insiders, we're a podcast for successful lien and deed investing. And of course, we're here talking to all you tax sale investors and nerding out about all things tax lien and tax deed related. If you are new here, my name is Rachel Seinesticker, and I'm the COO at Tax sell Resources who gives this podcast its powers. We bring you new tax sale investing topics each week by interviewing experts in the industry every second and fourth Wednesday, so be sure to keep tuning in and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We're back with Randy Saunders for the part two about Kentucky. If you missed it, Randy talked to us in early December about the tax lien sale process and gave us an extensive overview in that episode, so go check it out. But now he's back to talk about what happens after the sale during the foreclosure process. Randy is with Nelson and Mullins based out of Huntington, West Virginia. But as we've mentioned, Nelson Mullins serves multiple states and is actually unique in that they focus solely on tax liens and tax deeds. So I promise that Randy has plenty of knowledge concerning the Bluegrass State. Now this week's hot tip... Kentucky practices what they call a tolling period, that's tolling, T-O-L-L-I-N-G, which basically means that you cannot proceed with any foreclosure action until a year after the lien went delinquent. Now, this doesn't mean that's when the lien was purchased, it's when it went delinquent. It's time to learn, so sit back and relax for another episode of Tax Sale Insiders with Randy Saunders, and of course, our CEO, Brian Seidensticker.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Taxel Insiders. I am, uh, I guess, your host, uh, Brian Seidensticker with Taxel Resources. And uh, with us again, luckily today, have Randy Saunders, who uh, gave us an excellent um, overview of the Taxel process in Kentucky on another episode. Um, we, we fell short on time on that one. So we're going to you know, kind of pick up uh, where we left off, um, and talk about the foreclosure process here. Uh, but before we do that, uh, Randy, welcome. Thanks again for for joining us.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I, I really enjoy doing these and and uh, getting to spend a little time talking through this stuff with you. So uh, look forward to it. And um, you know, last time we really went through just the um, acquisition phase. You uh, know, talked about how Kentucky is a tax lien state. I think a couple of important things to remember. Uh, is the uh, requirement to, you know, set up a payment plan that you do have that one year tolling period. So when you acquire the tax lien um, at the sale, you basically can't take any action until the following year. Um, and, and so one of, the, one of the other things we talked about was the, was the fact that because there is such a long period, it's 10 years plus one, essentially that those tax liens are good for, you know, you can have those those liens stacked up over years. So um, you could always go back and, and try to acquire a previous lien if you wanted to, to move forward a little bit more quickly. Uh, but, you know, I think if, if they go back and, and the viewers kind of look at the difference between West Virginia and Kentucky, because those are the two most recent ones we discussed, you know, West Virginia offers an opportunity to, to try to have a plan to acquire land. Um, and I think, Kentucky is, is kind of the exact opposite. It offers you an opportunity to, uh, you know, g- acquire a portfolio that you are getting um, redemption and interest rate on, uh, also allows you to set up um, a servicing portfolio that you can, um, you know, charge some additional servicing fees on. So I think it, it's one of the biggest things as you go into it is, you know, understanding the, the different components um, and, and what you ultimately want. And I think we're getting ready to to today to talk about you know, okay how wh- what happens when we get at, you know, past the third payment plan or what happens when we're sitting on you know, uh, a stack of a portfolio of 200 liens that are between four and six years old. What, what are we going to do with these? And so I think this, this brings us to that place where Kentucky poses a challenge because as we talked about last time, Kentucky has 120 counties um, from Paducah to Ashland. You know, you're talking about a six or more hour drive, maybe seven hours, uh, and so that's a lot of ground to cover. Uh, and and you know, it's a couple hours from from northern Kentucky where you're at to in Cincinnati, you know, going down to say Franklin Simpson on the, the Kentucky Tennessee border. So you got a lot of ground to cover, a lot of small counties. You're dealing with a lot of ju- judicial systems, a lot of judges, and a lot of master commissioners. So when you when you jump into the state. Um, you know, there, there, there are uh, statutory, you know, attorney's fees that are allowed, um, that, that you can, um, you, you know, uh, get feedback on. Uh, but as you set all of this up, you know, I think you, you're looking at how many attorneys am I gonna have to have? How many court systems do I wanna deal with? And how many of these fires do I wanna have going at once for lack of a better word? Because if you go in and you spend a lot of capital, and instead of, of focusing that capital on, on certain areas and you divide it across 120 counties, um, you're gonna be stretched pretty thin. You're gonna have you know a lot of the, the, the servicing responsibility. You're gonna have a lot of things tied up in court and you're gonna have a lot of issues because the, the thing too that, that you have is that there's, there's, once it goes to the master commissioner and we'll talk about that, You know, again, you're at the mercy of the judicial system and attorneys will tell you, this is what it traditionally takes, but we all know sometimes in rare instances, rare instances, it goes faster. Mm -hmm. Most of the time it goes longer. And so, you know, you're going to get in a position where you're thinking, Hey, we're on an eight month cycle. And all of a sudden you're at 16 months, 18 months, you know, and then you're, you're waiting on the master commissioner to, to put these to sale. So, um, I can jump in i don't know if, if you had any specific questions just as we transition here or if you want me just to kind of jump into the pre-foreclosure process and then what the, uh, the folks can expect yeah
1: um real quick so for anybody that's joining us for the first time and you didn't watch uh randy's uh previous interview on kentucky we did one on west virginia but uh interview on kentucky and you have questions on the process from acquisition through servicing up to where we're going to start today Uh, Please refer back to that, that other um, episode. Um, So with that, I guess, uh, Randy, let's, let's just kind of start it. Like you had said, you know, you have to wait at least a year. You can wait to, you know, 10, uh, 10 years or uh, it ends up being 11 years, right? Right. Um, At some point in the middle there, you've got to do something, right? And so why don't we just start with, you know, assuming that that something needs to be done, you know, at that, you know, four to six year range, um, and what are, what are the options to the investor at that point? And then maybe we'll dig down into each one of those options in more detail.
2: And, and what I'll say is sometimes today you may see me looking down, and, and this is something that, that Brian has. I think it's published on the site still. I think it's still, for, for your subscribers, it's still available. This is the updated comprehensive uh, guide to understand Kentucky tax sales. And so, a lot of what I'm going to be talking about today can be found in there, some to, to greater detail. And as always, if you have any questions, you can reach out to Brian, reach out to me directly. You know, Brian knows how to get in touch with us. But um, what I'll start with is, is, is what you just talked about. It, anytime after the expiration of the one year tolling period, but before 11 years following the date of the, the taxpayer's delinquency, the purchaser has to institute a foreclosure action. Um, if if not just like any other type of lien a lot of you know or we i guess in, in my field there there are a lot of liens you know they have they have a lifespan and if you don't enforce that lien during that lifespan then it, it, it's extinguished and so it, it you it it may still be showing there but you can't enforce it um, it's it's just like with other forms of debt collection you know once you're past the statutory period it's bad debt you can't collect it. um So Kentucky has a one year tolling period. And and what that is, the purchaser can't bring an action to collect amounts due until one year from the date, not in the purchase, but one year from the date that the taxes became delinquent. And so taxes are considered delinquent on January 1st of each year. So a lawsuit can't be commenced until January 1st of the following year. So I think it's important to to know that. Again, Kentucky is not a state where expediency or urgency is, is a factor, but if, if you are in a position where you want to try to move these as quickly as possible, your date isn't dictated by the date that you purchase. Your date's dictated by the date that the, the taxpayer became delinquent, and for that whole portfolio that you purchase in that year, it's all going to be that January 1 deadline. You know, so for this year, it's all January 1, 2021. So any tax lien then wouldn't be, you couldn't move to enforce until January 1, 2022. Um, So what what I I think that the the biggest step, we talked last time about a 50-day letter, that you have to send a letter out 50 days after acquiring Mm -hmm. uh, and providing specific information. And so now this time the purchaser has to send out Um, to the taxpayer by first class mail and you have to have proof of mailing. Again, this is important because at this point what you're doing now is you're setting up your litigation and if you don't have counsel or you don't have those servicing guidelines set in place down the road, this is going to potentially cause you some problems if you cannot produce this stuff easily because the judge you know he's going to be up there. He's going to have some familiarity with this. He's going to be looking through the file. He wants to see a checklist of certain things. Mm-hmm. And the easier that you can make it for him, goes back to that, uh, you know, that that hope springs eternal that maybe our case will go faster than than all the others. You know, so if we have it and we're ready to go, we can go. So um, the notice has to inform the taxpayer that an enforcement action is going to take place. So basically, we want to tell them, look, we've got this. Um, you know, you, you've already had communications with this taxpayer because we've already talked about the fact that there has to be a payment plan in place. Mm-hmm. So something's happened at this point. The payment plan's fallen through. Um, you know, w- w- whatever it is that's transpired, it's gotten you to the point where now we're going to take this foreclosure action. So you, you've got to tell them. That. Um, to send notice, the purchaser has to obtain the most recent address for the property owner. From the PVA, each county has a PVA. It's the, the property value administrator in the county, uh, and again, that's important because they're going to go back and they're going to look. You may have an address, the tax ticket may have an address, so it, you know. But what happened before you send that forty five day letter, you need to go and be able to show here is what I got from the PVA, and again, show that to the judge. Very easy. I sent it to him. I did what I was supposed to do. There's no dispute there. Um, and and so you don't have to send notice to any other party other than the owner of record as provided by the PVA. And I'm not saying you don't have to send notice at all. I'm just saying the only PVA address that you have to get is, is for the owner. Um, the other thing that, that sometimes slips past folks is what happens if it gets returned undelivered or, or what happens if the return receipt isn't signed? You know, and, and so within 20 days of receiving notice that it was returned undeliverable, the notice has to be resent by first class mail. Again, you have to have proof of mailing and it has to be mailed to the occupant so that it's delivered. And so then what this means is you want to be able to go in court at that time and you want to be able to tell the judge once we were we're not there yet. But once we file our action, we want to, we want to be able to go in court, We want to be able to say, judge, here's my 45 day look and judge, here's where, you know, proof that I mailed it, and then here is, uh, you know, proof that I got that address from the PVA, and when it was returned under liberal, here's where I sent it again. In that circumstance, it's because a lot of times you got 120 counties, as we talked about, 120 judges. You may have a sympathetic judge. You may have a judge that's by the book, Um, but those are the things you can control, and if you're controlling them regardless of, of what type of you know, atmosphere m- might exist. You, you're you're putting it in the record and making it very difficult for them to try to find any strict statutory construction argument that you didn't follow. If you can't come in with that, if you can't come into court and show that, or and you or, or you said here's my 45 day letter, and the judge is like, okay, well, well, show me where it was mailed, um, first class, or show me where and you can't do that, that's not going to be good enough. And, and you're going to get into a position where, you know, you're, you're, you're putting yourself again at, at the back of the time too
1: Does it, <clears throat> okay. So maybe that answers my question is, is by <clears throat> not doing those things, I'll say perfectly, right. Um, didn't send it for first class or didn't send it in 25 days versus 20 on the follow-up. Do all those things basically make the enforcement null and void? Is in like you have worthless paper, or is it like you said, reset the clock? You got to start over. It is a is a pain, but it's not a catastrophic situation.
2: Yeah, it's it's not worthless paper, but it's going to be. You know, I mean, when you look at the so the statutes KRS one thirty four four ninety, um, and you know a lot of courts that you get into uh, across a lot of jurisdictions are are going to want to require strict compliance, regardless Mm. if that's the, the, the letter of the law. Um, because ultimately just this, like going back to, um, where I said in, in West Virginia, our judges are elected. So I I go to some County and I'm representing an out-of-state business against John Smith. You know, you, you, the judge is going to want to be fair to those folks. And he's going to want to say, you can't prove to me that you sent this letter to him. And he's telling me he didn't get it. You know, you you are the one that's doing this. You're the one that's sending out 500 of these. You should be able to show me that you sent this out, that it was either received or it wasn't received. And if it wasn't received, that you followed the statutory process. And so what we see a lot of times in, in, in all the states that work, is that if you don't adhere to, to that strict compliance, you know, across the board, um, you are opening yourself up to, you know, problems and pushing it forward. Now, what I'll say is um, uh, that that doesn't, like you said, it doesn't render the, the paper null and void. Uh, but, but if you didn't comply with that, uh, then you're gonna have issues that you're gonna have to either undertaking that litigation depending on what the issue is to try to resolve it or perhaps go back and start over <clears throat> and again you know then you, and you've and you got statutory attorney's fees that you're entitled to some you know under the statute you can ask for more but again that's up to the to judicial discretion and if the reason you're asking for more is because the judge says you didn't follow the statute probably not going to let you get into uh, you know <clears throat> um, but but so when when the notice of institution of action is sent out, it has to include these things, and I've got a list just so you, because I wanted to, to give the the listener an idea of you know how how specific and kind of how detailed this has to be, and why it's a good idea to make sure you're you're partnering with somebody who's at least helping you put this together, you know, so that 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 your letter at least you know, you, you may have a database where you can pull over the information and populate the letter, but make sure you've got everything in there. Yeah. So you have to have a statement that the certificate of delinquency is a lien of record against the property evidenced by the certificate of delinquency. You have to have a statement that the certificate bears interest in rate of 12% per annum. You have to have a statement that if the certificate is not paid, it will be subject to collection as provided by law and that the collection actions May include foreclosure. You have to uh, include a complete listing of the amount due as of the date of the notice. Again, so that's going to be a recalculating of how much is due, and that takes some work. Um, and you can, and again, that's why when you're coming to Kentucky, you want to make sure you have these systems in place. And again, they're not they're not onerous or they're not insurmountable, but they're also not. I mean, I think you got to. It, it's administrative, and you got to make sure that you have that in place. Um, and and. Uh, it has to be broken down as, as following. You have to be able to provide the purchase price of the certificate. You have to provide the interest that's accrued after the purchase of the certificate and any and all fees that are going to be imposed by the third party. Mm-hmm. And, and again, that's what it sets out. And, and quite frankly, if they get counsel or if they want to contest and come back and say, you're not entitled to these, you're not entitled to these fees. So there's no, there's no statutory entitlement to this. So they want a they full accounting of what they're going to be charged. Um, uh, for purchases required to register with the department. And we talked about that last time. How much are you purchasing and are are you, because in Kentucky there's the Department of Revenue and then there's each county. And so you've got to register with the Department of Revenue and then you also need to communicate with each county and determine what you need to do to to be a purchaser of tax liens in that county. Um, But due to the volume of purchases and for certificates purchased after 2012, a statement informing the taxpayer that upon written request and payment of a processing fee, the purchaser will offer a payment plan and information detailing the provisions of law relating to third party purchaser fees and charges. So, again, you're, you're reminding them of stuff that you've already dealt with, you're doing, you know, and, and providing kind of a full accounting of all this information. Um, and that's all statutorily you know, required. Um, now, if we want to take a step back, because one of the things again in there is reminding the taxpayer again, that um, you were going to, or that, that you're required to do a payment plan. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and we did talk about this a little bit last time, but, but I want to go back into this again, because this is that, that period, you know, where you talked about bet- after one year, but, but before the 11 years, so it says, um, persons or ent- entities that pay or intend to pay more than, uh, for more than five certificates of delinquency statewide, which that's not a lot, or more than three in any county or intend to invest more than 10,000 in payment of certificates statewide in any calendar year must provide a monthly installment plan to a taxpayer. So essentially, I would assume anybody listening to this broadcast, is, is going to be somebody that's going to have to have that set up. So again, keep that. And, and that's not really, I think mean, you can go back and listen to the last time when we talked a lot about that, but, but just make sure you've got that in place. Um, and that's what we talked about for each installment plan. You can add $8. Again, if you've got a portfolio of 10, that's not going to make you a lot of money. If you got a portfolio of 100, you know, or a thousand, then, you know, that can add uh, and, and, and
1: help with the offset cost of, of that administrative control. Right. So we um, go ahead. Yes. I was going to say so we've, we, the, this notification, right, that needs to go out to the um, address on record through the PVA, um and followed up with. And then obviously that's very critical later in the step. Um, after we've sent that notice, I guess. Um, help me understand the, the process from that point
2: forward. So, and, and again, that is just, let me go back. So, so you are sending that out at least 45 days before. So, so you could send it out before that, but if you're gonna file an action in, in the circuit court, and again, we'll, we'll talk about this, that the, the foreclosure action has to be initiated in the circuit court, and they have to be initiated in the county where the property is located. So again, if you think, hey, I'll come in, I'll buy all 120 counties, I'll spend a couple million dollars, and then I'll just file all my actions, say, in Lexington and Fayette County or in Louisville and Jefferson County. Um, and, and I think that's consistent with almost every state. But again, you're going to have to go to all those different counties. And that's why it's, it's, you know, problematic in Kentucky. Not, not problematic, but it's it's a logistical issue that, that you have to consider and deal with, you know, before you decide to buy across the state. You know, I'd say I would employ a strategy where maybe you do it by thirds. You know, you start in the middle, maybe go to eastern or western, but, you know, you kind of deploy it over, over a three-year time period as, as you start to move forward. Um, but so, what you're doing here is is you're just sending that 45 day. It's kind of like that last letter that's going out, saying, "All right, here it is." And and once that letter goes out, 45 days after, then you can file the action. The only time that that time frame um, gets a little hairy is if if say say you acquire a portfolio. And in that portfolio, you've got uh, a, a, a certain number of certificates that are like eight, nine, ten years old. So you're running up against that back end. Um, and, and so there, what you want to do is you want to make sure that you get that letter out 40, b- between 45 days and whatever your your statutory um, uh, limit runs. Does that make sense? Yeah. Not sure if I'm articulating that. Mm-hmm. Just just because. Otherwise, you know, you can file at any time and wait 45 days and file. file. You know, you've got basically that 10-year period after the one-year period of polling. So the only time you're going to run into a door that closes, if you're waiting until the 11th hour or the 11th year and trying to send out that 45-day letter, because you can't basically, the action is not going to be able to accrue until after that 45 days runs that you send it. So, but that's really the only time I've ever seen that be an issue. And, and it's not uncommon, you know, when you acquire a portfolio, because there's probably going to be some older certs that are, that are, that are left, you know, lying around. Got Does it. that answer?
1: Yeah. So <clears throat> a couple key things there, right? One's making sure you wait at least the 45 days, but you can wait longer and don't wait until you know, the last day of your 11 years, right? You need to have done it. <laughs> Well, in advance of that, because you're up against that that closed door at that point. Um, so, when you start it, that action after that, at least 45 days, is it a is it a standard you know foreclosure at that process at that point? And and if so, you know, let's maybe do a quick overview of what that looks like.
2: Yeah, it's so I wouldn't call it a, a, a standard foreclosure. You know, i you you're filing an action in um, the circuit court to, to foreclose on that tax lien cert and then um, you know you're going to have to get service on everybody which that is sometimes difficult and tricky and takes time you're going to have to do your title search to make sure you've got everybody um, the other thing is at that point um, especially if you've got an age cert or you've got a cert that's not aged, but that hasn't paid, you've got somebody that's been delinquent for multiple years, because then you're going to have other parties that are going to be lining up to get their, their slot. And, and here it's, it's pro-rata distribution. So it's not, it's, it's not as much of a concern about, well, if I have a lien that's eight years old, you have a lien that's four years old, and somebody else has a lien that's two years old, is that going to line up like priority in a mortgage context? Mm-hmm. It, it, it's not you know, you're basically all going to go in, you're going to get pro rata distribution. Um, so whatever it sells for, you know, after it goes through the process, um, then the, the, the master commissioner gets paid off, you guys will get paid off. Um, and then if there's something left over, it would go to any other liens or judgments that were out there. And then to, you know, then to the, the tax benefit themselves. So it kind of just flows down that waterfall like you'd expect. But, but I think, you know, for the most part, what you're going to see is a lot of uncontested actions um, and a lot of pro se actions. And sometimes you think, oh, pro se, that's good. They don't even have an attorney. That's going to be easy, right? No. No. Usually if it's pro se, it, it takes three times as long, simply, again, because of the practical factor. These are folks that don't have any, you know, real um, experience um, in, in the courtroom or with, with, the, with, you know, the legal process. And, and rightfully so, you know, just like if it was us or our family member when they come in before the judge, the judge is, is going to be a little, probably more lenient and explain the process a little bit and give them a little few more chances to try to figure it out or to get an attorney. Um, but let's say, okay, we get service on everybody, we filed the action, we've provided all the documentation, it's clear. You know, at that point, there's gonna be an order and that order is going to go out to the master commissioner for sale. Okay. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the master commissioner also, I mean, there's, there's other components to go in there. The, the master commissioner is going to have to have the property appraised. And he's going to set the time for the foreclosure sale and do all those things. But, you know, I think outside of, I think most of the folks that, that again, are listening to this, generally understand how that that process goes through. I think the landmines, maybe in in Kentucky, you know, are 120 different counties that you're dealing with. The prospect of, of pro se, making sure that when you come into court, you have your documents in place so that you can hand it to the judge and say everything was done correctly. You've got the component of not being able to control the time or the decisions, obviously, that the judge is going to make. If the judge wants to give the delinquent taxpayer more time, they're going to. And that's outside of our control. It's outside of the client's control. Once it gets to that point, then it dumps to the master commissioner. And again, you're in a process where you don't have any ability and there aren't, there's no time frame or no specification that says the master commissioner has to set this for sale within 60 days. That's not going to happen. Mm. You know, it's going to go to the master commissioner. And, and we've had some they go quickly and we've had some that take months and months and months to get set and and to get sold. Um, So, you know, again, when you're looking at it and you're trying to figure out I've got this, when do I make the decision that I want to push it? And and I think part of that is the payment plan aspect of it. Are you going to be able to go into court and say, I've given this Individual two or three payment plans, too. They keep failing on it. They're, they're not calling me back. We're not having communication. You know, those types of things from a practical standpoint, I think help you too and move it through a little bit faster. Uh, but, you know, almost by default, the process of filing, trying to serve everybody, which always takes a long time, getting it to decision in front of the judge, getting it moved to the master commissioner, getting it moved to sale. All those things then weigh against should we try a payment plan one more time? Does that make sense? Yeah. So you, you know, so and you've got and the court's gonna say, look, you got 10 years to bring this, you know, why don't you? Because they're gonna come in and they're gonna say, Oh, if I just if I just had a little bit more time, if we just do one more payment plan, you know, and 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 then maybe you're 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 back there and you're you're trying to payment plan again. So um you've got to, I think, how to consistent. That's not, think, right.
1: consider that's that's not it's not plan. like that starts the clock all over. You do a payment plan and then a the year down the road, it doesn't work out. You can't just pick up where you left off. You gotta start the process all over.
2: Yeah, unless you, you could you could move to stay potentially and, and stay for, for, I mean, there, there are ways that we could try to talk, like say, okay, would be willing to do a payment plan. Let's try to get all this paid off. If she can do a payment plan and get it paid off over the next five months, six months, something like that, ask them to stay. But again, that's at the court's discretion. Okay. So. Um, but I think, I think it's just having those kind of internal procedures that say, this is how we're going to do it. And we're going to have, you know, um, if they come to us for a payment plan, they pay it off. Maybe we'll give a little bit of a discount, you know, as, as an enticement to get it done. Um, if we reach X time period, we're going to move to foreclose. And then you've got a little bit of flexibility in there, but I think you're just moving it that way all along because i think the other thing that from an administrative perspective it it seems real difficult to me to try to come up with a new policies and procedure for every single cert that you have i think you got to have a game plan in place saying this is how we're going to go but then also have some flexibility if you've got a unique circumstance like we talked about last time you know um, you don't want to be the person in the newspaper that foreclosed on the vet who, you know, the, the veteran who had an 86 cent, you know, uh, tax commitment.
1: Right. As opposed to the, you know, vacant house on the corner that everybody would love to see, you know, brought back. The,
2: the meth is cooking in the bathtub and they want it, you know, or whatever it might be.
1: So, um, so as far as the, the, the action itself, um, it's, it's a judicial action, right? So mm-hmm. you now three questions that come out of the, the Master Commissioner sale one the uh, the deed that's sold right ends up being ends up being insurable is that accurate? You don't have to do a separate um, quiet title action after that that uh, deed is sold
2: yeah so so um the master commissioner conveys the property uh, and I, I, I believe. I'm, I'm trying to look here to see if I've got in my notes what type of a deed is conveyed, uh, but at that point, uh, let me just one sec here. Um, but but yes, I believe that is I believe that is accurate the, the, the master commissioner's deed. After the foreclosure sale, would be insurable just like any other foreclosure. foreclosure okay. Seller. Now the what
1: what happens to the properties that go to the master commissioner sale and and they end up not being purchased by anybody? They get do those go back to the lien holder, or do those, what happens in that situation?
2: No. So if there's no purchaser at the foreclosure sale, the master commissioner then issues a deed to the owner of the certificate of delinquency and that person has a pro rata interest per the amount of the certificate. Okay. And so so because and you think about why would that be because what if you've got six people that have certs. So again just like pro rata distribution of the of the funds right post sale you have a pro rata share which again that's why Kentucky's probably not a state for you if you're looking to acquire property because then what are you going to then you're in a position where you're looking at at filing action for judicial partition
1: so it's pro rata based on your percent of the total outstanding taxes yes okay
2: so based on well based on yeah based on the amount of your of your certificate
1: so just for round numbers if there were five thousand dollars in open taxes that started the whole process through the master commissioner sale and your particular lien was only a thousand of that at the end of the day You'd end up with twenty percent interest in that property, and all the other, the four other lien holders mm-hmm. would end up with twenty percent. So it's it's pretty key. Correct me wrong here, but it's pretty key when you get to that point and you do, you know, pursue with an action. Either it's a property that you know is fairly confident it's going to sell, um, or you want to do something to have all of the liens that are outstanding, right? Mm-hmm. So you- and, and we
2: can do that, and we do that a lot, you know. And and quite frankly, if, if- You do that early in the process or if in because sometimes you can anticipate and you can look and you can say it's you know might not go and so then you know these all of these certs are freely assignable at, at, at the time that they're purchased so you could go in this case when you're when you're bringing an action you know you could go to the other certificate holders and you know purchase their certificates and basically, you know, like you said, if there's the other four, go and, and purchase those and, and bring it all, you know, back together. Like, uh, what's the Avengers movie where you got the Infinity Gauntlet? You, know, you bring it, bring it all back together <laughs> yeah. so that you have More, you have yeah. all of the all the. <laughs> uh, but, um, and and you know, there there, I guess it 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 just depends too in understanding who else would be involved, what their ultimate goal is um you know heck for them it might be an opportunity to get get paid and get the money and you know they they basically look at it as a, a redemption
1: you okay. know so you um, mentioned this and just to to make it clear you can uh buy or sell those liens even after that action is filed it's not like they're frozen and you'd have to start over for any reason you can still transact or assign those liens back and forth right up until the point where the master commissioner sale complete correct
2: yeah yeah you could get you can you guys can you can do that at any time
1: interesting okay um is there any I mean it sounds like if you're really truly after property right you can forego the the lien purchasing and attend the master com- commissioner sales right if mm-hmm. you want to buy it. is there any like statute minimum of where that bid starts is it basically all open taxes with interest and in, and um, other fees or is it a a set at a percentage of assessed value
2: so and I will tell you this let me look at because I I don't know that in Kentucky I've actually ever attended one of the master commissioner sales Uh, and so um, you know let me look through here I mean, what what I would say is I know you know the master commissioner is going to appraise the property, and he's going to he's going to um, you know set up the foreclosure sale. Um, the, you as the purchaser and any other because a lot of times when you look at the traditional foreclosure, uh, like in the mortgage industry, um, if you have an interest in the property, you can't show up and bid on your own property, right? right. But if you're a tax lien investor, you can show up and you can you can bid. Um, if you're the high bidder. Again, you end up the um, owner of the property, uh, but that's almost a strategy. It, it right? says if it doesn't bring two thirds of its appraised value, and I think this is where. So again, I think this is the component that's more. I don't know, and I, honestly, where they start the bidding at, but if it doesn't bring two thirds value of mm-hmm. its appraised value that the master commissioner appraised it for, uh, the taxpayer and/or their representatives can redeem the property within six months um, from the day, day of the sale. To redeem the property, the taxpayer has to pay the original purchase money 10% or 10% per year interest and any reasonable costs incurred by the purchaser after the sale for maintenance or repair, utility expenses, insurance association fees or taxes. So I, I think that's kind of what you were getting at is, is like, is there, when you look at a threshold, um, I don't know, again, off the top of my head, if there's a starting threshold for the bid. I would assume that would be set by the master commissioner. It probably varies by county, but statutorily across the board, and this is under KRS 460 um, 350 And it says that you've got the master commissioner's appraisal. If you don't bring two thirds value at the sale, then you, you you create that secondary redemption opportunity for the delinquent taxpayer.
1: Interesting okay learn something every day in this industry Matt or Loren. well
2: and it's just more uncertainty <laughs> though too you know and, and that's why it's, it's it's like I always feel like and, and I think Kentucky and West Virginia both and and I'm sure this is probably common in a lot of places but you know it, it seems like the further out west you get the um, the the land hasn't always been in the family as long you know and, and in, in West Virginia and Kentucky you've got family property that's been around since 1700, 1600. I mean, you know, long, long time. And so the way I look at it is the system in Kentucky is set up to, you know, one, help get the taxes paid, because that's important. And that's an important, you know, thing that that our industry does, you know, to make sure that kids going to school and all these things that, that you know, but it also provides every opportunity for these folks that have a significant attachment to the land uh, to be able to to keep that that property. Um, And so, you know, you look through and and you see the payment plan, you see the second redemption, you see all all of these things, 11 years, you know, to try to work this out. All of these things to me show a legislative intent when they're developing the statute to create a system which allows Again, like I said, for, for the taxes to be paid, allows for people to pay the taxes to make money, but really tries to push the acquisition of property far to the back burner and to be a last kind of kind of resort. And right. really only a resort that occurs if the family absolutely can't or has no interest in maintaining the property.
1: Right. Right. I I mean I'd I'd even venture to say, Randy, that, that this may be the most, I'll say fair system, um, that I've heard of, um, you know, typically it's very one-sided, uh, you know, where it's very difficult, you know, for a lien holder or an investor to enforce it or the opposite where it's so investor friendly, you almost, you feel, you know, um, uh, simply <laughs> toward, yeah, yeah, sympathy toward the property owner. And, and it sounds like Kentucky is, is, uh, you know, definitely not where you want to go. If you're an investor looking for the properties, you don't want to go to the lien side, you can maybe go to the master commissioner sale. Um, right. but it's a very fair process on both, you can make money on the lien side. Um, you know, if you're the property owner, you have many, many attempts um, and opportunities to you know maintain ownership. Um, and so that's, that's, that's pretty unique. Um, I haven't interviewed attorneys in every state, but I'd say of the 20 or so I've interviewed so far, uh, this is, this is unique, which is great.
2: And, and you know, I would say too, if, if you're interested in property acquisition, your point is really well taken that, that the master commissioner sale, it, it, and you can, you can basically prepare by understanding what the master commissioner prays it for. So then you go in at 67%, you say for every property you're interested in, I'm going to bid at least 67%, maybe not more than 70. If I get them great, you know, then I've at least got a 30% built in equity. Uh, but the problem with that is, you know, the master commissioners are just randomly, you know, and so you got, again, I, I beat this dead horse, so I apologize, but you've got 120 master commissioners that are just setting foreclosure sets. So it's hard unless you have a specific market, unless you say, I have, I'm going to rent to students in Eastern Kentucky University, and so I'm going to go to Richmond, and I'm going to buy properties you know, from the master commissioner there, or I'm going to go to Moorhead State and I'm going to go to Round County and I'm going to buy them. And so I'm going to, you know, follow the master commissioner uh, and, and try to get those properties. So, you know, I think if, if you have that business plan and you're looking at it and you're saying that's, that's how I want to rule this out, it's possible. I don't know that it's possible based on the way the master commissioners set the sales across 120 counties to do that because you just run yourself ragged. But if you had a specific market where you're trying to acquire property for a rental business and you know who your rental market is, you could tag a few counties, follow them. And, and and I think you could you could then end up acquiring a significant amount of property in those limited locations where you have a market.
1: Right, right. Well, Randy, this has been enormously educational for me. The previous one was as well in Kentucky, but um, I'd never never heard all the specifics on the, on the enforcement side. And so I want to thank you for me, but also on behalf of our our listeners for that, for that knowledge and sharing with us. And um, I hope uh, we can have you back again soon. Um, All right. I appreciate it. I'm going to hold you to that. Well, thank you again. And uh, we'll talk soon. All right. Hey, take
0: care. Well, there you have it. That concludes our two part series about Kentucky. Huge, huge thanks to Randy Saunders and, of course, the Nelson Mullins team, including Matt Abbey and Megan Fitzgerald, who both contributed valuable information concerning Kentucky. I know we have more interviews scheduled with Randy about all things tax lien and tax deed related, so watch for him in the future. It's quite hard to believe that 2021 is coming to a close. We're going to conclude our first season of Tax Sale Insiders, and I can hardly believe it but we'll be back in 2022. So stay tuned for another round of episodes. You never know what we might throw in there. Thanks for all your support and continually checking back in. I'm Rachel Seinsticker wishing you happy holidays and of course, happy investing. I'll see you next time. Cheers.